0: Thank you Glenn, choir and orchestra. We're coming to the last of our messages on truth and I invite you to turn to 2nd Timothy chapter 3. 2nd Timothy chapter 3. It is the benchmark passage but let us look at it again in regards to truth. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. All scripture all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or mature artizo is the word from which we get artisan the craftsman Katartizo is a word that means to be outfitted and equipped. If you're a carpenter, you cartartizo a carpenter when you give him a hammer and a saw and a level and a few other things. You cartartizo that carpenter. You cartartizo the Christian when you give him the word of God and equip him thus for every good work. Now, the title of this message is, Truth is Not What It Used to Be. (laughs) We have a different way to gauge truth. I was in an interesting kind of dilemma this week. It's a social dilemma. It's one that nearly all of us have been in at one time or another. I was in a meeting of Baptists from all over the United States we are looking at ways to redo Ridgecrest and Glorietta. And they asked me to serve on a committee uh, to help plan it and raise money and, you know, those kinds of things. I've learned that before you're 50, it's, they want you to help them in evangelism. And after it's 50, they think you know enough people. They always want you to raise money. And uh, the rest of your life, you spend raising money. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but um, I'm not that old, am I? But anyway, so we were in this national meeting, and a man heard me introduce myself. Now, he came up to me with some strange questions when the meeting was over. He said, do you still have a lot of demonic influence around there? I thought, well, now, that's interesting. Let's see, what is he asking me? So I gave him an answer. You know, a preacher can, you can take five words and stretch it into 50 any day you want to. I mean, that's, you're gifted at that, Amen. (laughs) and uh, then later he said, honey, this man comes from near where our daughter lives, up where Dale Cross Pastors. I thought, I've heard that name. I met that man one time. That's a pastor in Massachusetts. I said, where does your daughter live? He said, oh, and he called the little suburb of Boston, and I thought, now I'm going to embarrass this guy right in front of his wife, and five other people standing around here. What do I do? I thought, well, I'll just go along with it, you know, for a while. Oh, well, I said, yeah, it's a great church she's in. You know, I, I try to smaltz it over. And then it hit me. You can't do that, Mark. Tell him the truth. So I thought, now, how do I do this? Mm. Uh, I said, well, that's true. I got a lot of friends up there. I love that area. We've been up there doing some, some home mission work. That's true. But really, I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He said, oh, I thought you said Salem Mass. He was thinking about the witch's trial. And that's why he asked me about the demonic influence. Now it all made sense. (laughs) You know, it was a terrible look on his face when he realized he had made a huge faux pas. And I would, have been, I would have been just as bad if I'd strung the guy along and then he asked me, what's that highway that goes right by my daughter's house? And I had to say, well, it's, 100, it's interstate 194 because I didn't have the foggiest notion. Truth, yeah, still is valuable, still is important for us. God's truth reflects God's character and this can be right, relied on Absolutely. And God shall deal with anyone who tries to escape the truth. You know, in the Middle Ages, from the Renaissance down through the Enlightenment, man was struggling to get out from under God's truth and God's authority. They struggled to get away from Rome, which was the locus of authority, for so many years. It ushered in philosophies that led us to ask, Who is man? And who is the man who is the measure of everything? Because when you do without God, then you have to measure everything and everyone by man. And out of that came Hitler, Hugh Hefner. <laughs> they all come from the same philosophy. Shall we call Stalin the man who is the measure of all men, or Mother Teresa? Who is the measure? Once you get rid of truth, there's nothing left but man. And look at what happened to the world when there was nothing left but man as the measure of all. Paul Shearer warned us about this years ago. I want you to listen to this quote. One by one, the generation that refused to be bound by the Pope and refused to be bound by the church decided in an ecstasy of freedom that they would not be bound by anything, not by the Bible, not by conscience, nor by God himself. From believing too much that never did have to be believed, they took to believing a little, so little, that for countless thousands, human existence and the world itself no longer seemed to make any sense. And we were on a slippery slope away from truth where man is the center of everything feeling exhilarated in our freedom because now I can do whatever I want to do. Humanist Ted Turner, the owner of the Atlanta Braves, I would remind you, and the partners with Time Warner. Ted Turner said that Christianity is outdated and irrelevant and only an idiot would believe what Christians believe. That's where we are. That's where we are. Television talk show host Larry King was asked a question. Said, who out of history would you most like to interview? And one of the persons he mentioned was Jesus Christ. And another reporter jumped on that and said, why would you like to interview Jesus Christ? And this is what he said. Now, this is interesting. This is from Larry King. He said, I would like to interview Jesus Christ. And I would ask him this question. Were you indeed born of a virgin? Because if you were born of a virgin, as trite as it may seem, the answer to that question would define all history. Isn't that fascinating? Now there is beginning to be just a little bit of a move in the minds of the intelligentsia, they're coming finally catching up with the people aren't they that maybe there is something to the historical jesus who anchors truth and proves that god is god exactly who he said he is and that the word of god with a record of his pure and sinless Holy life of his propitiatory death and his resurrection and his ascension and exaltation is God's truth, and that without it, we're on a slippery slope, going nowhere ad nauseum. Well, there are three things I want you to hear out of this passage that addresses our problem. The first is God's truth is perfect, the second is God's truth is profitable. And the third thing, God's truth is practical. And in it, I want to couch for you the five basic tests of what truth really is. And these are good, whether you're asking your daughter, whether she took the $5 bill off your dresser, or whether you're dealing with the historical accuracy of the resurrection. These five elements or tests of truth I'll give you in a moment. First, let's talk about this for a minute. Look at the first line in verse 16. All scripture, pasagrafe, pasagrafe is theonustis. it is inspired of God or God breathed out. Now the phrase pasagrafe can only mean one thing, that every part of the part is required to make up the whole. All of the scripture is inspired of God. We don't have a little bit inspired over here and some of it inspired over here. Who sets himself up as the referee to decide what is and is not inspired in a situation like that? All scripture is is, uh, uh, inspired or God breathed. Every bit, every piece of the whole is God breathed. Now, notice something else. Let's look at the God-breathed, inspired of God, Theonoustos, breathed out by God. Keep your hand here and turn back to 1 Peter. Remember that Peter tells us how the Scripture came in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at just a couple of verses. To the prophets of old, in verse 12, it was revealed not to themselves but to us They were ministering things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things about the future which angels desire to look into. That's an awesome assertion. Way back when the prophets were writing, they were writing for us. They were ministering to us. The question is constantly asked, how can old historical writings of 2,000 years ago have any relevance to today? I don't, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but I do know this. When the Bible says that it is better to live in the wilderness than to live with a contentious and brawling woman, I, that still speaks today. Amen? I'll get back to the other side in a minute. I want to be fair. <laughs> See, my point is that even the Bible says that the ancient prophets were writing, ministering to us 2,000 years in advance. Look at verse 15. So that it is intended to give us information. As he who called you is holy, you also will be holy. You will be holy. Because that's the purpose of the writing. That is the reason why the scripture was written, which is why Peter goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, he says, drink in the sincere milk of the word. Remember the milk of the word. And that is very, very important. Now go to Second Peter chapter 1 and you'll see it again. He talks about the word. You'll see it in verse 12. I will not be negligent to remind you of things. You see it in verse 15. I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I go. I'm going to write it down. Verse 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. But he said, verse 20, no prophecy is of scriptures of any private interpretation For prophecy never came by the will of man, but this stream of men, including Peter, who said, I'm like the prophets. I'm writing so you be holy. I'm writing so that you will be reminded of holy things. Verse 21, prophecy never came by the will of man. Peter said, I didn't just sit down and say, you know, I think I'd like to write a book of the Bible. But rather, holy men of God spoke as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. They were not automatic computers. They were men in real place, in real history, but they were picked up by God and carried along so that they said exactly what God wanted them to say, but they still demonstrated their personalities. Isn't that beautiful? What do men speak, class? Do they speak words or do they speak thoughts? They speak thoughts into words. That is why we use four words to define what we believe about the inspiration of the Bible. Let me quickly review those with you. I want you young people, I want Eddie, I want your boys to know that they were raised in a church where the Bible is the infallible, plenary, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And I don't want there to be any question about that. So I'm going to do this again. Here it is. We believe, we use the word plenary that the Bible is a, is a plenary inspiration. That's an old theological word that means full. It is complete. It is up to the top. This morning, I got out some orange juice. And uh, I've been squeezing my own orange juice. I love fresh, ice-cold, squeezed orange juice, don't you? You know what I like to do? After I squeeze it, I put it in the freezer and let it form an icy crust around the edge. And then just before I drink it, I stir it. Boy, that. Isn't that good? How many of you like frozen orange juice? Just little, little ice in it. Boy, that's good. That's refreshing. Man, I could take one right now. Did anybody here not have breakfast this morning? <laughs> Moving right along then. Uh, plenary means full. I poured that baby to the top every inch I could get in it. That's a plenary glass of orange juice because it's full of orange juice. The Bible is full up of truth. Hold your hand here and go to Luke 24. Listen to what Jesus believed about the Bible. If you want to argue with Him, wait till you get to glory and you can argue with Him. But in Luke 24, if, uh, providing you get to glory, uh, Luke 24, Jesus says in verse 25 of Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter in His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. Not some of the scriptures. Notice all of the scriptures. Jesus used the same kind of language that Paul used. And then again in verse 44. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses And the prophets and the psalms concerning me. Now the Jews had three parts to their scriptures. What were they? They were the law, the psalms, and the writings. Kethabim. And the psalms. Those, Those are the scripture divisions. And Jesus cites every one of them to say, every one of them tells about me. All things have to be fulfilled. All the scriptures are about me. All scriptures are inspired of God. Secondly, we use the word verbal. The Bible is inspired verbally. Turn to Matthew chapter 22, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that. What we mean is that the scriptures are... Inspired by God or protected by God, though the personality of man is not overridden. Just as Christ was human and divine, the Word is divine in that it's protected as a treasure without error. But it is given to man so that man's personality comes through. Isn't that a miracle? Well, that's not surprising because we see the model in the person, the hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 22, read what Jesus said to the uh, Sadducees. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You are erring, mistaken. And then he goes on in the same chapter to make a very, very significant point. Go to verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, Who do you think about, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said he's the son of David. Now watch, Jesus hang them right here. Okay, he said, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? David called the Messiah Lord. And he quotes from Psalm 110 and says way back, David said that the coming Messiah was my Lord. Meaning which David knew the coming Messiah would be the eternal God to whom he paid obeisance. He the king of kings. David, the greatest king of Israel. He called Jesus the Messiah Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus' whole argument hinges on one word. He says, why did, why did David call the Messiah Lord? And people say to me, well, words aren't important. It's just just, just the way people read it. Yes, words are important. That whole argument rides on one word. That's why we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Now, this is not the mechanical dictation theory. I had a professor at university that I won't name, but it's not far um, from here. Uh, I had a professor who one day said, now, this is what people believe who believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. And then this is the way he characterized it. He said, uh, they think that Paul sat down with his pen and his paper, said, all right, God, I'm ready to write the book of Ephesians. What's the first word? Oh, say a little louder, Lord. I can't quite hear it. Paul. Okay, I got that one, Lord Paul. Paul. He went on like that for two or three words. Well, I have, I'm shyer than you think, but in those situations, I'm not shy. I stood up. And said, wait a minute, um, mm -hmm, Professor so-and-so. I said, uh, I believe in verbal inspiration, but that's the mechanical dictation theory. And I don't believe that. And I've never had a teacher who believed that. Well, he said, come on up here and tell us, of course, what you believe about inspiration. He said, thank you. I'll be glad to. So for 20 minutes, I explained what verbal inspiration is. It's not mechanical dictation. It's not. There is mystery, sure, but there's mystery in the divine union of Christ, the human and the divine nature. There's mystery. I'm not saying we all explain it. There are things we assert, but we cannot explain. Amen? And that's true of the verbal inspiration. A third word we use is the word infallible. Infallible. Turn to John 5. Jesus, I think, believed the word was infallible. Now, this word means that it will not lead you astray. It's infallible. It's infallible in that it will not lead you astray. In John chapter 5, Jesus gives us this argument that is very, very important. In John 5, and look at verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. And if you believe Moses, then you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, do you see his argument? If you believe Moses in the Old Testament, believing in Moses would automatically make you believe in me. It would steer you in the right direction. That's why the Bible's infallible. It's like riding a bike, kids. If you get on a bicycle, I say, see that line down the middle of Country Club Road? If you ride that, it'll take you all the way into town to five points, right? Now, you might get killed on the way, but it will take you there, Right? See, that line is infallible. Why? It will take you exactly where I told you it would take it, if you follow it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's Jesus' argument about the Bible. Take anything in the Old Testament, if you believe that, it will lead you truly without error to this. If you have believed Moses, it would automatically lead you to believe me. That's Jesus' argument. That's why we call the Bible infallible. There's a fourth word we use, and that's inerrant, without error. A perfect God could not breathe an imperfect word. Now do you get the understanding? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, Jesus gives us an interesting clue to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. "Assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Not one jot, not a yote, not a kariah, not a tittle. Hebrew has little marks, appendages. Some, some of them are as small as 3 16 of an inch. And the presence or absence of just a little tittle or a kariah will mean A completely different word. Now, go back and read that again. Jesus says, Not even the smallest little mark in the Hebrew language will go without being fulfilled because every word will come to pass. So even the marks, Jesus says, are true, inerrant, without error in all that it says. I don't believe it's just inerrant in salvation. I believe ultimately it will be proven to be inerrant in every area to which it speaks. That's the Bible. That's my belief. It is plenary. It is verbal. It is infallible. It is inerrant. Now, I'm not going to beat everybody over the head with that, but you need to know what I believe, and the world needs to know what we believe about the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. man said to me, boy, you sound like you worship the Bible. I said, no, but I wouldn't know who to worship if it weren't for the Bible. Amen? How would I know who to worship? I don't worship the Bible. I'm not a (laughs) Bibliolatrist. Well, you've never seen the original manuscripts. I know. I've never seen Jesus, but I still believe in him. Amen? Secondly, God's truth is profitable. Paul makes a marvelous statement. Don't ever lose sight of this. God's truth is profitable. You don't need to make any excuses I know this is a little more cognitive sermon than I ought to be preaching to children on Sunday morning. But I'll tell you what, after my children grew up, I I got over being embarrassed about preaching the deep things of God to children because they remember far more than you give them credit for. And when they have seed sown in their minds, that seed sown will continue to produce fruit. And you don't need to apologize to anybody for having your children in church, for having your children in Bible study, for reading the Bible at home. They will absorb more. Man, I had to start somewhere in geometry. And if I hadn't started down here somewhere, I would have never known how to do, which I don't know now, (laughs) trigonometry. I never have to do that anymore. But do you understand my point? God's truth is profitable. The word is advantageous, and for four reasons, this is the source of doctrine, didaskalia, teaching. Where we go to get truth? You want to know about the Holy Spirit? Go to the Word. Go to the Word for reproof, elegmas, conviction. You know, I can read Charles Dickens, and I don't get into conviction. I can read uh, Stephen King, I don't get under conviction. I can even read John Grisham, who is a Southern Baptist layman, making his 28 million a year. (laughs) But, uh, uh, and tithing. Lord, move him to this church, amen. Uh, uh, (laughs) I can even read John Grisham, but I don't get under conviction. Anybody here ever get under conviction reading John Grisham? But I'll tell you what, I pick up the Bible and suddenly the living words of the bible grip me there's a difference when you read the bible there's a difference when you read the word of god there's a difference it is correction all scripture is given for correction this is different from conviction correction is restoration or setting straight And finally, instruction. It means the general improvement of virtue. I think the greatest thing that should come out of television ministry is the public distribution of the exposition of God's Word is valuable even on a lost man because it raises the level of understanding and the level of truth and the level of righteousness and the level of holiness and virtue generally across society. And one of the greatest disappointments the lifetime I've spent in ministry will have to be that so much television, and I'm not condemning any person with this, but but by the very nature of television, so much Christian television had to be dedicated to raising more money so you could buy TV time to raise more money, so you could buy more TV time to raise more money, and so little of it was given to the actual distribution of the Word of God. And while we're on that subject, that means if every Christian were tithing and the churches were properly using their money for missions and not spending it all on themselves, that we wouldn't have to ask for money over television and we would be free just to preach it. Amen? You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) Thy word is truth. Lastly, let me close. God's word is practical. That the man of God may be karatizo, complete, mature, perfect, perfect, in that he's outfitted for what God expects of him, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there are five tests for whether something is true. Now, hang with me. This is a little complicated, but I'll make it as simple as I can. There are five basic truths. I've read philosophers for years. I've read all kinds of, and, and over the years, I've I've combined uh, five basic things that I think are always tests of truth. Test number one is the test of consistency. Consistency. The scripture says no scripture is a private interpretation. Scriptures coalesce; they come together; they they support each other. One scripture does not contradict another. If you think it does, it's probably because you're not understanding it. Scripture must, truth must be consistent. Truth must be consistent. And that's one of the characteristics of the scripture. It's like a pilot landing you got a light here and a light here and a light here and a light here. But is it three or four lights? Where are you, Jim? But anyway, by the time you follow those lights, when you see one light, you fly over it. Then you see two lights, you fly over it. Three lights, you fly over it. You know if you sat down, there's going to be a runway at the end, right? See, that's the test of consistency. Uh, for instance, uh, boys and girls, let me, let me show you this. How many fingers do I have up? Three? How many fingers do I have up? Three fingers plus two fingers make five fingers. And three apples and two apples make seven apples. Is that statement consistent? It's not consistent, is it? See, now that's one of the tests for truth. That's where you test whether something is true. I can't get into it much more deeply than that because time won't allow it. But the test of consistency. Are these statements true? Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will. Now, see, I'd have a problem with the Bible as truth if at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, oh, Father, I'm not doing your will. I'm going to do my will. Now, that would be inconsistent, wouldn't it? And then Christ would have a blot or a blemish on his character. If one time he says, I came to do the Father's will, and then he says, "Now I'm not going to do the Father's will. I'm going to do my will. But do you see how the Bible fits together and is consistent and therefore true? Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will. There in the garden, what did he say? Not my will, but thine be done. Second test of truth is a test of experience. <laughs> uh, if we had time, I'd take you to Thomas in the book of John, where he said, oh, you guys saw him, but unless I do what, class? Do you remember what he said? That's experience. Unless I put my fingers in his side, unless I touch the nail prints, I won't believe. Now, if Thomas had never touched, was Jesus still with nail prints? Of course he was. See, truth is not true because of experience. The experience is true because of truth. It's not true because it's proven, but it's proven because it's true. It's already true. I said that to you last week, but that's the test of experience. That's the test of truth. You can tell whether something is true. Try it out. Does it work? It's not true because you prove it. It's true whether you prove it or not in terms of God's truth. The third test is the test of application. Doesn't have any meaning to my life. If you tell me that you know there is red mold on green cheese on the moon, I could care less. Doesn't have any effect on me. Anybody wants some red mold from green cheese on the moon? Because it doesn't have any practical application to my life. But if you tell me there's a man outside that door with an Uzi gun, he's going to come in and spray us all. I, I, that, that means something to me. I'm head friend of the pew. Amen? See, the te- one of the tests of truth is, is it applicable? Now, hold your hand and go back to Deuteronomy. Here's one of the greatest t- uh, truth tests in all the Bible in Deuteronomy 18. 18. Chapter 18. Deuteronomy is the, the uh, fifth book of The Bible. God says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. Wait a minute. Would anybody like to argue about whether the Bible is verbal or not? What did God say he would put in his prophet's mouths, class? I didn't say that. That's not a Mark Court's rule. That's not a Calvary Baptist rule. God said that. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, underline this in bold lines. I will require truth of him. <laughs> that is an awesome thing. He's gonna hold me to the truth. He's gonna hold me to the truth. I got a tax bill for my personal taxes and I stuck it in the to be paid in January file and didn't think any more about it because we had a little piece of property cut off when we did some things behind our house and so I get a main tax bill and I get this other little tax bill and I just thought well that's, another, that's one of those little tax bills and I will stuck it in there and I'll pay it in January then I get this notice, second notice, you better pay your personal taxes twenty six dollars and fifty five cents for a car that I had from my dad or whatever and, and uh, I said, "They mean business, don't they? They want it now." So I got out my checkbook quickly and wrote that twenty-five ninety-nine. Now I will require it of thee," the tax collector said. Do you understand what God is saying here? Our relationship to truth—God measures us by truth. He will require truth of us. He will require that we come up to the level of truth. That's why Peter tied holy living to your view of the scripture. That's why Peter tied looking like God to the infallible, verbally inspired, plenary and word of God. The fourth test is the test of undeniability. Truth is undeniable. God, Hebrews 6 says, who cannot lie and cannot swear by anyone greater than he is, he swore by an oath himself his own unchangeability. Now, that leads us to the idea that a truthful statement must not be deniable. I, for instance, a man says, I do not exist. That's a dumb statement. Because, see, before he can deny his existence... He first has to admit that he exists because if he doesn't admit that he exists, then he has nothing to deny. You got me? Are you with me? (laughs) That's what I mean when I say a statement must be internally undeniable. And when I read a philosopher who says, I don't know whether I exist or not, I want to blow my stack because, look, you, you can't deny something that doesn't exist. So you have to start by affirming that you are real in order to deny that you are real. And when you make a statement like that, it's not an undeniable statement. It it's a, that's a, a truth test. Is the statement undeniable? So when a man asks, "Who am?" and that, by the way, is one of the greatest questions of mankind. One of the greatest questions is, "Who am I?" You say, "Well, if you don't know by now, you're in serious trouble, preacher." <laughs> I heard about an absent-minded professor. He got up to eat breakfast one morning, and his wife said, Now, honey, I know you have a hard time remembering things, but let me remind you that we're moving today. So don't come back to this house. Go to our new house. Professor goes to the day. He forgets where they moved to. He drives to his old house, walks in, it's all empty. There's nobody there. Everything's gone. He scratches his head. He sees a boy playing out in the yard. He walks out to see the boy. He says, son, did you know the people who lived here? And do you know where they moved? And the kid said, dad, mom said you'd forget. (laughs) (laughs) Who am I? That's a serious question. And see, apart from our relationship to God, how do we know who we are? I exist because God exists. I am because God is. And I shall be because God shall be. And it all starts with what you believe about God. If you believe him, then you exist. You exist. The fifth test of truth is, is it affirmable? It's a test for falsehood. This is what Paul this is the argument Paul is using in 2 Corinthians 1 when he's explaining why he didn't come. He said, "My promise to you is my word to you is not yea and nay. I don't say yes and no. See, that cannot be affirmed." That's where pluralism came from. A philosopher said, "You know, you don't argue either or when the reason Christianity is so bad is it makes these exclusive claims. Jesus is the only way. And it's either Jesus or no one at all. No salvation at all. That's the danger of Christianity, he said. So he tried to hypothesize a new way to think. It's both and. I love Ravi Zacharias in one of his tapes says he got into an argument with this Hindu professor who wanted to tell him that he was the, his problem was that he was thinking Western, either or. He said, you got to think Eastern. He said, this is strange. Here's an American who's become an Easter mystic, telling me from the East how to think like an Easterner? <laughs> but the man argued, and he said, look, you've got to think about Jesus as, as not either or, but both and. It's Jesus and Muhammad. It's Jesus and uh, Hinduism. It's Jesus and. And he looked at, at Ravi and said, now you've got to come to a decision. Either it's, it's either or or both and. And Robbie laughed at him and said, do you realize what you just did? You're using my argument to argue with me. You're using the either or argument to tell me I've got to choose. I can't have either or and both and. I hope you understood what I just said. (laughs) Some of you look dazed. God said, I will require the truth of God from you. I will require it. I will require it. I'm going to measure you by the truth. I'm going to hold you to the truth. I'm going to make you stick to the truth. And it's not up for vote. And it's not up for poll. In Malcolm Muggeridge's biography, I think it was in the biography where I saw this. Or maybe a story about him. He was, uh, before he became a Christian, before he was saved, he was a journalist in India writing for a British magazine. And one day in the town where he lived, he went down to take a bath in the river. And when he went down to take a bath in the river, in the distance, he couldn't quite see what she really looked like. He saw a woman undressing to go into the river to take her bath. And his lust raised its ugly head and his heart started pounding. And he had been denying the truth of the Bible and the one truth that made Malcolm so mad was that Mugridge could never come to believe in the sinfulness of man's heart? And Muggridge said he got in that river and he started taking his bath and he kept looking over at that woman on the other side of the river. And he thought, I'm gonna swim over there. I, I've got to make contact with that woman. And he started swimming, and when he got over there, he found she was an old, old woman, wrinkles all over her face, herbs sticking out of her teeth, and her nose was missing. She was a leper. And he drew back out of the river and he thought, oh my, how ugly and sinful the human heart is. How awful it is. That began a road for him to admit the truth of the Word of God, which he had denied because he had believed in the innate goodness of man. When he saw the evil, and the indecency of his own human heart. It scared him. And not long after that, Malcolm Muggeridge began a search which led to his being saved and becoming a Christian. And he became a vibrant, powerful witness for Christ in the literary world. And the truth of God stands in judgment over every one of us. Jesus Christ is Lord. Sooner or later, you must admit it and come to him in faith or be separated from God eternally. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me in prayer? Father, I pray that you will take some truth from your word and apply it to every one of us today. Require it of us now rather than requiring it of us in eternity. For if we acknowledge Christ now, it will be no problem in eternity when the whole world shall bend the knee and bow the head and confess that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Speak to those who do not know for sure that Christ is a Savior or bring them to the front where we will have an opportunity to pray and counsel and talk with them. Bring somebody to the altar who needs guidance and wisdom and doesn't understand how to apply the Bible truth to their lives. And speak to those who know they need to be a part of a fellowship of believers and bring them to this place to join this church and serve you here in Jesus' name.